0: Well, I've been very encouraged over the, the last few weeks uh, of looking through the Gospel of Matthew that the, the reception has been so positive. Not that the reception of, of sermons is, is ever negative, I haven't experienced that, but I've received some positive feedback, so I've been encouraged uh, to try and maintain the same uh, standards or the same pattern that I've done up until now. And today is going to be no different. I've been, I've been laboring as we go through the book of Matthew. Yes, to make it relevant to us. To emphasize those practicalities that speak to our hearts. But at the same time to try and open up a little bit of the, of the richness of the treasures that the Word of God has. It's not meant to be boastful uh, as we see these things. It's not meant to be uh, uh, high, pie-in-the-sky kind of thinking, but it's meant for us to look and to understand that we're speaking of the Word of God. And there is so much richness there that lies beneath the surface. So that the next time you come to read Matthew or any other book of the Bible for that matter... You would be encouraged to read what is there on the page, but to try and make these connections, to try and, and, and understand that this is not just words written by men, but it's the holy they are holy spirit inspired words, to pay closer attention to every um word, to every preposition. All of them are of God. Someone was mentioning to me even this morning that some of these details sometimes go unnoticed in our daily Bible readings as we go through these passages. They go largely unnoticed to me as well until the time I come to really uh, dive deep and and, and look at them. But when you see them, it makes that prayer of David so much uh, of the psalmist in psalm 119 so much more uh, relevant open my eyes so that i may behold wondrous things in your word and these are the wondrous things that are there to be behold and it's not some kind of gnostic understanding that is reserved just to a few smart uh, and intellectual elites it is there for us to see so As we go through this passage once again, or as we move to the next passage from verse uh, 18 to 22, I'm going to try and emphasize how this section, this part of the narrative, this part of the history of our Lord Jesus fits together with the the whole of Matthew and with the whole of the Old Testament. In the same way, towards the end, I'll try and emphasize some of those practicalities. So you remember last week, and I think here is important for us to have the context last week we considered uh, the nature of the kingdom of God, the character of the king, and the the demeanor of the subjects of the kingdom. You might be safe did we <laughs> but that's what we were looking as we looked through through the hopes and expectations of Isaiah, we saw what was the expectation for the king what, what exactly were the Jewish people the s- students of the Old Testament ex- expecting for the for the for the coming of the kingdom of God the king the kingdom and and what is the hard attitude and we saw that in the in the message of our Lord that you need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We saw how that fitted. It's not some kind of new, innovative message. It's exactly the same message that was preached by John, the last prophet, that was preached by all the other prophets in the Old Testament. It's the the demeanor of the citizens of the kingdom. And today... We'll consider one thing that we didn't consider so much because of time. We will consider how the move of Jesus to Capernaum fits with this narrative, uh, with this redemptive narrative that Matthew is giving us. As I mentioned last week, Matthew is not so much worried about... um, chronological details of writing a careful uh, step-by-step history, kind of like Mark and Luke does, Matthew is concerned about presenting us a bigger picture. And the, the events that he emphasizes here are meant to cast us back to the Old Testament to see these things, are meant to, to be read, read in light of these overarching themes and, and narrative uh, narratives. One thing that usually happens once we get to to chapter 4, to the second part of chapter 4, is that John the Baptist gets out of the picture, and we don't think anymore about John the Baptist and and the beginning of the message, the the introduction in the book of Matthew. What is the relationship between what's happening now in chapter 4, what's recorded for us in in this second part of chapter 4, and and what was already prophesied by John the Baptist. You remember the message of John the Baptist. It was a message of judgment. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. There is one who's coming. will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Behold, the winnowing is going to sift you through with a winnowing fork. Where, where is that message in what we see here? And I say, you don't see it. It's not here. It's going to be at the end of the age. But I think it is present here. It is present in, in the fact that our Lord Jesus goes from, from Judah and he goes to the Gentiles. There is an element of judgment happening even now and even here at the beginning of the, our Lord's ministry. Jesus moves from, Zebula, uh, from from Judah to Zebulun and Naphtali uh, and, and he moves to this region as, as a sort of judgment upon Judah. They've rejected John the Baptist. Look at how it starts. John the Baptist was, has been put to prison by the king of the Jews, by the king of Judah. So Jesus departs and he goes to the north. He goes to this land uh, of Zebulun, of Naphtali. And there is an element here of judgment. Now, this area of Zebulun and Naphtali, this area of Galilee, was, was not thoroughly Jewish, And it was not thoroughly uh, Gentilic. Gentilic is the... uh, Whatever is not Jewish is Gentile. This area is kind of a mixed reality. It's a borderland. It is not not Jewish. But it's not really Gentile as well. There is a mixed uh, mixture there. Historically what happened is when the kingdom of Assyria came and took the kingdom of the north... They, rel- they relocated some of the, the peoples, the the ethnical uh, peoples from other areas to the north of Israel, to Israel, to the, to the kingdom of the north. So over there in that region, it was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was a land of darkness. That's the prophecy of Isaiah. That's the prophecy that Isaiah had in mind. In his own context, it's that the north of of israel the kingdom of the north was in darkness was this mixed uh, place where there was no light and the prophecy in isaiah 9 says and light will dawn there light will come there it's not going to be in in the kingdom of ahaz if you go back to the to the book of isaiah it's not going to be dawning uh, in the kingdom of, of ahaz although the 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 David's throne will be established forever. It's not Ahaz. There is still another son coming. One who is wonderful, uh, counselor, uh, almighty God, everlasting father. There is still coming, but it's not in Ahaz. It's going gonna, it's gonna to start the, the sunrise. It's going to start in the north. That's what we're being told by Isaiah. And that's what we begin to see here in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. It's a message, the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9. It is a prophecy of hope, but at the same time, it is a prophecy of condemnation right there at the start of Isaiah to the kingdom of Judah. Dawn will not come to you, he will come to others. He will be first apparent to the Gentiles. What is it that the Lord is doing? We just read that, haven't we? And I didn't plan this out in any way, shape or form. I just realized it as I, as I looked at what was the, 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 the psalm, the next psalm that we were, had to read the, this evening, Psalm 48. Look at verse two of Psalm 48, which is a we don't believe in coincidences, do we? Great is the Lord, verse 1, the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth Mo- is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. It is that idea that grace would come or that the dawning would first come through the north. And this is what, it of course, fits, fits perfectly Matthew's narrative. Because as Jesus withdraws from Nazareth, to Galilee, to Capernaum, he goes to the north. And the wickedness of Judah forces the light to go. Forces, they, they reject the light, as John says in John 1. They rejected the light. And it goes to the northern extremities of the land, where the kingdom of the new David will first have its first beginnings. And that's what we see in this passage from verse 18 to verse 22. It is the, the first subjects of the kingdom. I'm not going to say that, the ki- that, that our Lord Jesus the king needs subjects because he's perfect in and of himself. He needs nothing. But a kingdom needs subjects in many ways. There is no kingdom without citizens of the kingdom. So as we see the kingdom of God being established here at, at the beginning of Matthew that's the theme of Matthew we are we are seeing Christ the king compelling those of his choosing to become citizens Jesus like Elijah before Elijah before him was Elijah before him was a minister to the Gentiles was to minister to the Gentiles. He goes to the Gentiles. And we'll see a, a people comes to, that comes to him from Decapolis later in this chapter. The people that are Greek and by, by ethnicity. And Jesus is coming to these Gentiles. It's the same story all over again. In Deuteronomy we find don't we that God that the God of Israel uh, was going to uh, turns from Israel to the nations to provoke uh, jealousy among the Israelites and that's what we see happening here the same way that Elijah called elisha as he was plowing the field Jesus so so Jesus calls his disciples as they are hard at work in their in their trade he calls them away from their work and from their families andrew and peter casting nets in the sea or mending uh, casting nets in the sea um, and he and james and and his brother john uh, mending nets with their uh, with their father he calls them and this is consistent this is what we see. And, and another element here that, that casts our minds back to the Old Testament that so often gets unnoticed is this language of being fishers of men. This language of being fishers of men is a fulfillment of, of expectations and it is judgment uh, that comes uh, from the, the prophets of the Old Testament. This language was, had already been spoken by the prophets in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 16:6, 6, we read this: "Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them, and afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks." Look at what prophet Amos says. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, uh, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks. And your posterity with fish hooks. You know what's interesting in this passage is that the fishermen or the fisher of men, they are seen as God's judgment. It is an element of judgment that God is saying, I will send these Gentiles as fisher of men and they will fish you out of your land and take you into captivity because of your sin and because of your idolatry. There will be no place to hide. You will be captured. You will be pulled out and you'll be taken into the boat, into exile among the Gentiles. And Jesus is using this image in the same way, in many ways, in the same way. It is this expectation that the disciples will seek to capture people. But the parallel breaks there and it becomes a paradox because Jesus is using it in a very different way. In many ways, it's the same, but in many ways, it's completely different, because now it's Jesus fishing out people from where they are. But it's not to, to take them into exile. It's fishing out people from exile by his disciples to place them in the kingdom. But it's nonetheless judgment coming upon the, Judea, the Jews. So you might ask. Does this fulfill the expectations of John the Baptist? And remember, John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. His words were true. And he says that the one coming after him would come with judgment. So does Jesus starting his ministry in this way fulfill those expectations? In many ways, yes. In many ways, it is the judgment coming already upon the Jewish people. Because of their sin, because the disciples will fish and separate uh, people. There will be a, 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 a wheat being gathered and a, a chaff being rejected. In many ways, they will gather Jews from their exile among the nations and Gentiles from the sea and bring them into the boat, into the boat of the kingdom. That's what's going on here. Our Lord, as He preaches the kingdom of God, it is, it is a message of, of discerning between the wheat and the chaff, and we see that happening in this passage. But not only did Jesus preached the kingdom, he is beginning to call one and, and, other, and call people into his service. And that's what we see happening here with Peter and Andrew and James and John. Four disciples. You could say four corners to the new spiritual temple being built. Four disciples that represent the four corners of the world to go out into the, to the four corners of the world. The first four disciples of the kingdom of our God are called here and they're called to leave their jobs to follow Christ to leave their family they're called to lay everything and to reshift and reconsider all their their hopes and all their goals in life in order to follow this one man from Nazareth of all places. It, takes, it took a lot of faith on the part of those, of those four disciples. Just as it takes a lot of faith in our own day. In order to follow someone, in order to, to, to place yourself under the guidance of someone else, you have to understand that person to be greater than you. And these men understood it. Because the calling of Jesus is that effectual calling that cannot be rejected. So what do we learn from uh, from the calling of these disciples? What do we learn from them? First of all, we learn something about their character. And we learn something about the character of those that Christ calls into his kingdom. In many ways, yes. Yes. God is impartial; he makes no is no, um, no respecter of persons. He cares about people, but he doesn't see people as we see but in many ways when he calls, there is certain traits that seem to be prevalent in in all of god 's people upon the calling upon receiving that call. Notice that these brothers were they were indeed brothers but they were fishermen as well. They were uh, hard at work. They were they were those that were involved and active. The Lord Jesus finds them at work fishing, mending nets. They were working. And brothers and sisters, this reminds us that diligence in, 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 in an honest calling that pleases Christ. That we need to be those who are active at work. Christ calls those who are active. There's no passivity here. In fact, he called them to work harder than they ever worked in their lives. The, the call of the gospel or the, the call for gospel service is a call that 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 being a fisherman pales in comparison to the hard work of being a servant of God. Notice as well, these men come from humble beginnings, and that 's so wonderful to see Jesus didn 't go into Jerusalem. He didn't go into the temple courts to find his four, first four disciples. He didn't go into the, into the schools and the synagogues of the Pharisees looking for those who, who had a, a degree in, in rabbinical law, in uh, uh practice. No. He called them out of humble places. He called those who were uh, men who, because of their line of work, were perhaps impetus, impetuous, were perhaps uh, outspoken, impatience, misguided. In fact, they were, uh, (laughs) up until the, the resurrection of our Lord, cowardly, as Peter was. And God, Christ does this. He chooses the, the humble and the foolish and the weak things of this world to shame the wise, the strong, and the prideful. That's where, uh, what we see happening here. God will not call a prideful person. He will first humble that prideful person. God will not call someone who feels themselves to be strong and able in and of themselves. They must first come to understand their weakness. God will not call those who think themselves to know better. Isn't that how many, oh, I know better. I know this. I know that. You don't need to tell me. Now God will call those who have come to understand that their wisdom is actually folly. Their wisdom is actually what brings condemnation to them. God comes to call those, like the Apostle Paul, and he was a very wise man. He was one of the wisest, perhaps one of the most brilliant geniuses of his time. But it's only when he realized that his wisdom that made him... According to the wisdom of the world, someone above reproach, as he says in Philippians three. According to the law, blameless. It's only when he realizes that all that wisdom was actually rubbish, as he says, he was dung, as the AV translates. That he's actually then in a place to come with empty hands to the savior and say, "I'll take, I'll take you." It's how humility. But notice how Jesus calls them. It's follow me. Verse, verse 19. He comes. And the, the nature of the calling. It's not an invitation. Do you want to follow me? So often we we, we mask. Or we water down. Our gospel message. With, with, a, with a notion of invitation. And it's. It's not necessarily wrong. But it's. It's watering it down. I believe it was Arthur W. Pink who said, Our go- the gospel call is not an invitation, it's an ultimatum. You follow or you die. What are you going to do with the message? And in this case, it's a clear command. It says the Apostle Paul to the, to the Athenians, now God commands every person everywhere to Repent it is a command follow christ it is encompassed on following christ that you need to repent because you have all your life ran away from him so in order to follow him you need to turn you need to stop look turn and follow it is repentance that is implied in this follow me 13 times in the gospel of Matthew these we hear Jesus saying to people follow me Although in yes these disciples were literally as well as spiritually called to follow Christ they were there's what the meaning of disciple is Be, being a follower being someone who is learning from the master from the teacher but but it is nonetheless true there is it means a submission to the authority uh, living in obedience to him as their master this unknown person well according to John uh, some of these fishermen, they they were already disciples of John the Baptist, so they already knew of Christ. It wasn't as if he just comes into the to, to the to the scene and they and they follow him without knowing. But sometimes it happens. In the case of these fishermen, it not so much because they were John the Baptist's disciples. But it means laying everything aside taking away the yoke that was at once upon us and yoking ourselves to him. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to be a follower of Jesus. There is no, no way... That you can call yourself a disciple. That you can call yourself a follower. That you can call uh, yourself a son of God. Without being obedient to him. Without making him your Lord and master. Without being willing to follow wherever he calls you. Wherever he leads you. Without being willing to trust him. With everything and anything in your life. But not only it is a, 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 an element of, of our own personal uh, way or, or um, relationship. It is, there is an element of responsibility. What does Jesus say to the disciples here, to these four men? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The calling... To follow Christ is a calling to action. Again, Christianity is not some kind of leisure activity. Something that you add on to your life. My life is really good. I just need that cherry on top of my life. I need Christianity just to give her a sense of spiritual morality. No such thing as that. It is a call to lay everything aside, to sacrifice your, your, your pleasure, your, your wealth, your honor, your status, your family, your father, your mother, your daughters, your sons, your uncles, where to sacrifice it all. To sacrifice that which you cannot keep. For that which you cannot lose. That is the sacrifice. To work for him. That is the commitment, thirdly, that Christ wants for us. Commitment to lay it all. To follow him. And it costs everything. In many ways, salvation costs you nothing. Nothing. It is all a work of free grace. But it costs us everything, doesn't it? It costs us everything. Not to purchase our redemption. Not to earn our salvation. But it is a calling. That costs us all. We we receive salvation as poor people as those who cannot buy anything. It is God that saves us. It is God that must save us. And we offer nothing to God. We're powerless. But in many ways, as we submit to Him, our discipleship, our following Him, our following after Him, will love to cost us, and does cost us, I don't often quote the American evangelist Billy Graham. And in many ways, I even shudder at the thought, but it, a broken clock can be twice, twice, right twice a day. Or he used to say early on in his ministry, and I think that's when his ministry was most profitable Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything we have are we aware of that have we realized that when we come to Christ then when we cross the narrow gate of repentance that narrow gate is too narrow for us to carry anything with us for us to carry any baggage luggage I always get both those two for us to carry any things with us we need to leave it all back there as we go, you know those tourniquets that, that they have installed in some in some public areas. It is really hard for us to get through. Even if you have just a, a, one of those uh, side bags that, that, that people use, it's it, it's awkward and it it's hard to pass. Even harder, spiritually speaking, is cr- crossing that narrow gate with anything. It is impossible. I'll follow you wherever you'll go. Once someone said to our Lord, the Lord dispelled his ambitions quite quickly. Are you ready to be a follower of Christ? Have you been following Christ? Are you ready to say I will leave my boat, my nets and follow you in every way and anywhere that you would call me? Sometimes God calls us, yes, as he called Peter, Andrew, uh, John, and James, as he called these four men. Sometimes God calls us to put everything behind. But sometimes God calls us to be fisher of men, to be his disciples, to be uh, citizens of his kingdom where we are. Are we ready to do that? Or do we have those things that God, not this, not my job, not my friends, not my family. I'm not willing. You can have everything else, but this doesn't work. The call to be a disciple is a call to give up everything that you cannot keep. And to follow him will give you himself in blessings that you will never lose. Will you go that way? Have you been going that way? Jesus, our Lord Jesus says that there is none who has done these things that will not receive a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. There is a promise of increase but the demand is radical and requires faith. For Peter and Andrew, for James and John, this call that they received was unique. It's not really like our call, but in many ways, our call is very similar to theirs. We're called to reorient our whole lives to reorient everything in our life to from the root to the to the to the to the to the point, to the, point the end of each branch of our lives to reorient them in light of Jesus claim for our lives even if you don't leave your home, even if you don't leave your job, even if the Lord does not call you to, to, to some kind of full-time ministry here or abroad, even if the, uh, the Lord has not called you to, to, to go into some desolate place where no one has ever heard of the gospel, even if that is not your calling, the calling to follow Him is a calling to lay everything, your plans, your prospects your desires your hopes it is a call to put it all upon the altar of following Christ being a citizen of the kingdom is saying everything and anything that I have is God's all my time is God's all my possessions are God's all my Dreams and hopes are God's. From the root to the top of the tree of my life, everything is reoriented through Christ. So how is this call to discipleship, this radical call to living an ordinary Christian life? This is not extraordinary Christian living. This is ordinary Christian living. How is it That this impacts your life. When was the last time you laid the nets aside? You left them. You left your father there on the boat, your Zebedee there on the boat to follow him. In a few moments, we'll be joining around the table. And as we gather and remember the death of our Lord, the atoning death of our Lord That's the cost of our salvation. That's what we have. That's that's the price that was paid for our salvation. And that's what it means to be a disciple. That's why this is a meal just for believers. How can someone who has not become a disciple, a follower of Christ, how can someone who is not a king, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, partake of this bread and this wine? It's for those who have a commitment to follow him. It's not a meal for those who are simply curious. It's not a meal for those who are going through the motions. It is a meal for disciples. It is a meal for those who have a genuine relationship with Him, who follow after Him, who have been transformed by His grace. It is a meal for those who love Christ and love the brethren. And that love for Christ and love for the brethren is demonstrated in how we obey His word, in how we cling to the fellowship of the saints. Our final hymn is is one that speaks of the gloriousness of this of this.